Almighty God, I thank you for uh, this your parish family, Lord, and our long history here in the city of Birmingham. We pray for all the saints who've gone before us in this great cloud of witnesses and um, laid a foundation for a solid gospel witness and ministry. And I pray especially today in Thanksgiving and for guidance uh, for Alice, uh, who will be teaching on this topic today, Lord, would you uh, direct her? Uh, and we thank you and praise you for her. All these things for the sake of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. Um, this uh, is the... Someone was in the wrong place earlier. This is the history of the Cathedral Church of the Advent. So if you're looking for something, uh, a different class, just uh, FYI. And it's not a newcomer's class. Someone joked about that. This is a, You're probably here to make sure that um, that you're mentioned um, and uh, or some relative of yours. So uh, we come to you in all humility in that, in that regard. But... Um, this is the first of a, a two-part. Sorry. Yeah, I don't know how to turn that off. Do you want to investigate that, Bailey? Uh, ask a sexton; they'll be able to. Sorry about that. Is it is it giving the sound of the nave? You got it. Look at that. There's the. I bet those aren't really books. That's um, a secret passageway into the tunnels below. Um, uh, uh, what was I going to say? This is the first of a two-part, so I hope you'll come back next Sunday. But nonetheless, you'll get um, a certain level of the beginning of the history of the Cathedral Church of the Advent um, today. Um, and this has really been a conversation that Alice Boucher and I have had since I got here for about a, a year and a half. Um, and so glad that uh, we're, we're doing this uh, now. And she's done this class before. And really, uh, I don't have anything to say. I'm going to hand it over to you, to her but we'll go until about 10.40 um, and then open it up to some discussion. So without any further ado, Alice, okay. and if you yeah. want to turn on your <laughs> scarf or something there. Okay, well, God, me a little bit. Where's, just as long as it's... There you go, perfect. Mm -hmm. Okay, good. Well, I'm glad that... Uh, that you all are here, and um, I'll, I, I've got notes to try to keep me on track and not go straying off and tell you some of the things that I think are most important rather than wandering off just talking. But I hope that we'll have um, plenty of time for comments and questions. And anybody who wants to say, why didn't you mention my family? I'll take notes. Um, this is, uh, well, and my plan was to start with a blank screen and then a little ways into this I would zap this up, but I don't know how to do that, so we'll just, you can ignore this for um, like the first minute or two. Uh, I'm going to try to do this like telling stories, really about our story. We're part of this story. Uh, it's important, I think, for us to tell it and to retell it so we know um, whose shoulders we're standing on, what's gone before, but also so that the people coming after us will be part of this uh, stream of um, worship in Birmingham and of the church. So, 
uh, I'm going to tell you the story about how how we came to be, how the Advent came to be, uh, how it's, I want to touch on how it's evolved, how it's changed, because how you know it now is not exactly how it was when it started. But also, um, it's important how it has stayed the same. Uh, how the, um, I'm going to touch on several themes. That This first part is the Advent's earliest days. And I want to touch on several themes that I recognize that I see continuing to this day. Um, this is going to be kind of a quick overview. In all, we're covering 144 years in two parts, so we're not going to hit every year. We may hit uh, what Andrew talked about in the sermon uh, in 1897, nothing happened here, except at the Advent in 1897, I think that was the year they, they paid off the mortgage for, uh, for the church we worship in, so it was important. Um, to start with the Advent story, of course it's rooted in the story of Birmingham, because it's really in part Birmingham's story as well. It's starting with when a group of 10 investors bought about 4,000 acres of raw land where they planned to build a city and make a profit. Uh, it was just six years after Lee surrendered at Appomattox Courthouse. And compared to Huntsville and Mobile and Montgomery, which were really the state centers of cotton trade and business and social life, Jefferson County was a complete backwater at the time. So in 1871, when settlers began coming here, it was something of a wilderness. And I, I um, was struck in doing research in the past that you know, there's a daily office uh, as well as our um, Sunday worship, and they're opening sentences for every uh, season of the church. And one of the sentences for the season of Advent, which is our, I think of our church having a special relationship to the season of Advent. One of the opening sentences from Isaiah says, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So I, in thinking about this raw land that the investors bought to create a city, uh, it was something of a wilderness. And I see sort of a resonance between what happened here with this church and uh, that excerpt from Isaiah. Uh, where we are right now, I'll 4,000 acres around it was mostly overgrown fields. This is in 1871. There was one railroad line coming through. And there was the promise that a second line was coming, but it wasn't even there yet. Uh, we had to have the railroad lines to connect to markets, or otherwise this vision of... Uh, a place where iron would be made, where a great city would rise up. Without those railroads and the connection to markets, nothing could happen. 
at the time there was a lot of talk about making iron and creating an industrial center. But, and this is when the slide pops up. Uh, but what actually existed was some frame houses on streets that turned to mud when it rained. So I think one of the first things to understand in thinking about the founding of the Advent uh, is, to me, the courage, the fortitude, the conviction of those pioneers who came here to create something out of nothing. Well, Bishop Richard Wilmer must have believed Birmingham's promoters because in 1871, he sent a 32-year-old deacon from Tuscaloosa up the road to Jefferson County. The assignment was to serve a small Elyton church that was named St. John's and to start two missions, one in the infant city of Birmingham and another in the mining community of Irondale. Although St. John's Elyton was organized in 1850, except for just a six-month period in the 1850s, there was no resident priest. So every year or two, the congregation, when they could get the bishop or a priest from somewhere else, they'd have communion and confirmation. They didn't even have their own church building, which this is, until 1872. When Bishop Wilmer sent Deacon Philip Fitz to St. John's, that church had about 50 members. Mr. Fitz had grown up a Methodist in Tuscaloosa. Then in 1861, several months after he got married, he was confirmed as an Episcopalian. He fought in the Confederate Army. He returned to Tuscaloosa to practice law. Before long, though, in 1870, he had gone into the ministry and was ordained a deacon. And not long after that, Bishop Wilmer sent him to Birmingham. We have few details about the Advent's earliest days. All the oldest records are lost. And the information we do have is sketchy, and some of it even is conflicting, like about where the first services were held. We know that there were services held in Birmingham for several months before there were enough people to organize a church. Probably they first met in a storehouse at First Avenue North and 21st Street, and probably by February 1872, a nucleus of Episcopalians had formed because that was when the Elyton Land Company, the founders of the city, gave to the Diocese of Alabama six parcels at 20th Street and 6th Avenue. This map is from 1887, so, uh, but it's the earliest one I have that shows the parcels that were given. Uh, you can see from the map, so the, the map dates from 15 years later, but you can see what a choice location it was. Uh, it fronted on the city's main street, 20th Street. It was in the heart of the residential district, if you could read uh, the names with each of these houses, you would recognize some that have been important in Birmingham's history. And it was just a block from the park that the, 
the Ellington Land Company hoped would become the site of the state's capital. Well, of the 10 land company investors who created Birmingham, most of them were from Montgomery. Three of them were from Jefferson County. You probably won't be surprised when you consider how choice the, the, the site was uh, that many of them were Episcopalians. For example, Josiah Morris, the company's largest stockholder, who was later said to be the richest man in Alabama, was a prominent member of St. John's Montgomery. Uh, other Ellington Land Company officials who were Episcopalians included the president, James Powell, the secretary treasurer, Willis Milner, who about 10 years later laid out Highland Avenue, and the chief surveyor and civil engineer William P. Barker. When Matt saw this, he said, oh, he kind of looks like a cowboy. And, uh, and maybe he was. Birmingham in its earliest days was a little bit of a Wild West town. William P. Barker laid out downtown. So the streets, the street widths, where the parks are, all of that was laid out by Barker. Both Milner and Barker were on the Advent's first vestry. Milner sang in the choir, and Barker gave the silver cross that stands on our altar today. Uh, in May of 1872, now, just a few months after receiving the land from Ellington Land Company, Mr. Fitz reported to the diocesan convention that Birmingham had 16 communicants a total of 27 parishioners, plus $315 toward building their first church. Shortly after that, uh, St. John's Montgomery, where, remember, Josiah Morris was a member, St. John's gave the Advent $400 for their building fund. By 1873, the first church building was completed. This is another later map. It dates from 1891. But I picked it because you can see the first church. It was this place that's labeled church. Um, it, the map dates from about 20 years after that first, first church was built. And you can see to the west of it is where our, our the church we worship in today is, uh, and it's labeled, I'm not sure you can read it because it's so dark, it says Church of the Advent Episcopal, and then it says unfinished. So that was the foundation that had been laid. Uh, the first church was about where the south end of Clingman Commons is now. So it faced Sixth Avenue here, and it was kind of back, back that way by my best calculations. The original church was built to seat 200 people, uh, which was probably four or maybe more times greater than the number of members they had. So I was struck by the, the idea that this was clearly an act of faith and of vision, that they would build a church that much larger than they had need of, and that they were trusting that God would fill that empty space. 
in the 20 years following, the frame church was added onto twice. So I think it's here and there. So in May 1873, the new parish of the Advent, with its 27 parishioners, was admitted to the diocese. Then, probably while some members of the church were still celebrating, two major calamities struck. Uh, the city was hit by a cholera epidemic that killed hundreds of people here. And there was an economic depression that began that was going to last the next six years. So you can imagine the city's two years old at this point, the cholera epidemic and, and a major depression. One thing I think to be mindful of, in its first 10 years from 1872 to 1882, the Church of the Advent had six different deacons and rectors, three of whom were here a year or less. Think about that kind of turnover and what it meant for a fledgling church. After Mr. Fitz left to go to a church in Tennessee, there was James Van Hoos here. Uh, who served as deacon in charge. He was never ordained as a priest, but he was a deacon. Uh, he was a Birmingham businessman. He was later elected mayor of Birmingham. He actually served as deacon in charge at the Advent several different times during this decade. And later he helped the Advent start Grace Church Woodlawn and St. Mark's Church. Then there was Kenny Hall, who was here for 12 months. Uh, Charles Morris was the priest here for 11 months. John Gray was here for three years. Uh, I was struck by the idea that this kind of turnover was probably the beginnings of the strong lay leadership for the parish, uh, which we still have. Finally, in 1882, Thomas Jefferson Beard brought his, this is courtesy of Matt, brought his beard and his stability to the Advent. I just was in Demopolis and his picture was on the wall there. He was director. At the, at, down at, uh-huh. Folks moved around. The striking thing about uh, Mr. Beard and the Advent is he's the first long-term rector he was here for 14 years from 1882 to 1896. So in my mind, he represents another of the key characteristics of the Advent, which is rectors who stayed for long stretches of time under whom the church flourished, working with the lay leadership, but the rectors bringing stability and, and leadership that is part of a pattern. He was the first of a pattern that we see woven from now on. Uh, two important events happened while Mr. Beard was at the Advent. First, the industrial boom that everyone had been waiting for finally arrived in 1886, bringing at last hope for the city having a strong economic foundation. And the, Second, the church that we worship in today uh, was built. My hunch is that it was in the heat of that 1886 boom while people were still making money hand over fist, investing in pig iron and real estate. And there's some great 
stories of uh, folks standing on a street corner like at first and 20th street and buying property and selling it uh, several times in a given day and walking out a rich man but while that was boom was happening i suspect is when advent members said let's go ahead and build our church to last us for the next century once again they decided to build three or four times the size of their congregation and once again they trusted that god would fill it in fact however the faith involved in that was mightily tested because unfortunately the iron boom collapsed and the congregation was left with a grand foundation and no church they had to build in spurts as they raised the money they'd raise some money build a little bit and then it might halt for a year or two raise some more money build some more it was over the next six years that the church was built as money was raised and ran out. When you're in the church sometime, look for the plaque to Mr. Beard. It's along the Sixth Avenue side here. It says, this building is a visible reminder of his service here. He built with faith. And you can imagine the faith of trying to build a structure over six long years. This is a drawing of the proposed church that was published in 1889. You can see it's a sophisticated Gothic Victorian structure. By the time it was actually completed, however, it had become simpler and more eclectic. Uh, it's a combination of Romanesque and Gothic details. Undoubtedly, it was simplified by the need to cut costs as money ran out and there was another local depression. Now, this is one of my favorite slides and this mm -hmm. photograph is uh, in the hallway um, walking toward the day school. I don't, well I guess you can see okay, the little inset up at the top left hand corner that was what the first exterior of the church looked like. And you'll notice that the north tower is left uncompleted. It looks like it's been just sliced off. And I think that was when funds ran out again and they had to raise some more money. The interior was quite plain. And um, does it look a little odd to you? Study it, it's very interesting. Everything you see in this photograph has changed except the stained glass windows flanking the altar and the pews. And we can thank the women of the church for them. In fact, another of the strong themes running through the story of the Advent is the role of the women of the church. They work tirelessly to raise money, both to pay off the debt and to furnish the new church. For example, in April 1893, when the church was almost completed, the women held a reception and strawberry festival to raise funds to purchase pews. Now here's what the Age Herald newspaper said about the event, which lasted, imagine a strawberry festival, lasted from four o'clock to nearly midnight. 
The paper said, quote, almost every matron and maid prominent in society took part in the affair or were present as spectators. Now, some of you have um, ancestors who probably participated in that strawberry festival. Uh, the paper went on to say, music and fair women, cream and strawberries, and good cheer generally made the occasion delightful in the extreme. So when you sit in our pews, think of the strawberry festival. There are more stories about uh, Advent women raising money to build and furnish our church. Two years before the strawberry festival in 1891, let me clip along, the year of that second map that we saw with the church building labeled unfinished, the Ladies' Aid Society challenged the building committee to spur them to pay off a $7,000 note that was coming due. The ladies told the men that if the men could raise $5,000, the ladies would somehow manage to come up with the $2,000 remaining. What the men didn't know was that the Ladies' Aid Society already had two $1,000 bonds tucked away. Uh, it seemed like the, the, the ladies thought that the men needed a little competitive pride, and it worked. So in 1898, the women of the church gave these two stained glass windows on either side of the altar. They are among the church's oldest, and they represent our church's name, Advent, or coming of Christ. And they're the most prominent windows in the church. You see them every Sunday at the east end of the sanctuary. Four years later, the Ladies' Aid Society gave the altar in Rarados, imported from Munich, Germany. So again, when you sit in the pews and look at the altar, flanked by those stained glass windows, Remember those women who almost 150 years ago held dances and operettas and trolley rides as well as strawberry festivals to make a beautiful house of worship for us. There's one additional theme we can trace back to the earliest days when Margaret Ketchum Ward, Cameron Vowell's great-great-grandmother, played the pump organ. Uh, it's the very pump organ that Sam Ermey who until recently has been in our choir, Sam found that pump organ, uh, had it restored for us, and we still hear it played from time to time. Uh, so Mrs. Ward was playing the pump organ, and Cameron's great-grandmother, Mary Cameron, sang in the choir. That theme is the importance of music to worship at the Advent. In 1884... Fred Grams was the first professional musician, one of several who subsequently have served the Advent. Uh, he was here for 35 years, part of a tradition that we still enjoy today under Fred Teradeau. I'm going to pause here. Um, we have time for questions and comments. Next week we'll talk about the Advent in the 20th century and bring it up to 2016. Um, we'll talk about what set each of the rectors apart in the 20th century, and I hope um, get to a point we can tap into some of your own memories. So 
Matt, do you want to? Points of discussion, questions. Where were the stained glass windows made? For these, we don't know. Uh, but we do know for some of the other early ones. Um, for example, uh, the you know the raising of Lazarus window. It's on the Sixth Avenue side of the church. Uh, there are the very large three windows in the transept, and the next three has a feeding of the 5,000, the little boy with uh, two fishes and a loaf of bread, changing the wine to changing the changing the water to wine. I was going to say changing the wine to grape juice, and I know that's Changing the wine to water and the raising of Lazarus. And some of those were made by the Lamb Studio. And then, uh, and they were given a little bit before those two. But we don't, there are a lot of records we don't have from the earliest days. Yeah. The first, uh, Philip Fitz came up in 1871, and they started having uh, a gathering, I guess, some worship with whatever Episcopalians they could scare up. Um, the church was not formally founded or named until 1872, and it was admitted to the diocese in 1873. So you notice on our um, service leaflet, it says something like founded with the city of Birmingham in 1872. So there's that sort of sequence. I think of it's probably like planting a church today where you go and you gather people together and you may not have named it or have formal commitment yet, but it depends on when you want to... the date you want to pick, but there, there, there was, Philip Fitz was here, and there were early meetings of a group of Episcopalians who undoubtedly became the Advent in 1871. The earlier pictures you showed, church no, it it was given in uh, 1872, I think. Look back for my notes because I get all these dates going. Um, 1872 was when the land was given. So I think we can assume that they were giving it to the diocese, but I'm making the assumption that um, there was a, a clear nucleus of people who would become the church. That was 1872. And probably in 1872, but it may have been 1873, is when that frame church that was kind of just set back a little bit from here facing 6th Avenue 
uh, was built. The church we worship in today was started in 1887, uh, completed in 1893, and it, it's interesting, the Thanksgiving before our current church was completed, the frame church uh, burned. So it was good they were that far along. Is that what happened to most of the early records where they lost in that fire? Um, I possibly, but th there's an early historian, Joel Dubose, and he he suggests that uh, that they were somehow lost, and I don't. We just we don't have any clear. Um, information you know possibly that could be that that would seem to make more sense but but there there are some early there's some early commentary that talks about uh that doesn't link the absence of records to the fire bailey did you church that we know today that's completed in 1893. Right. They paid off a $7,000 loan. We had the idea of the total cost. I, I, I don't, and I don't know if, um, you know, we have some early histories of the church. They are, um, chunks of them are anecdotal. They're not footnoted and I don't think I've ever seen that but I'm not I'm not sure and I, I, I don't know and I think it probably changed as they went along uh, you know usually construction costs go up 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 as you go along but seeing that earlier drawing I suspect they were figuring out ways to simplify it in some respects in the 1930s, there were still two houses where the Advent, where the day school parking lot is. Did the ministers live in those houses in, in the 1800s? Uh, no. Um, people did live, you know, now we think of this as in the heart of the business district, but originally the, the business district was Morris Avenue to about 4th and where the early churches start like First Presbyterian was or Morris to 3rd um, then the residential area started uh, the early the early rectors um, I don't know where Mr. Beard lived we might be able to find that looking in city directories but in 1902 and there may have been a it, it may have been on the side of this but in 1902 a rectory a handsome brick rectory was built kind of where the the garden is and um carpenter house is that the other building uh-huh if it was kind of squared yeah. off yeah um and Mr. Murray lived there, and I'm trying to think, maybe a couple of other people. And then in 1913, there was a, we'll, we'll talk about uh, 
Middleton Barnwell came and they said he was young. He, he actually got married shortly after he came to the Advent and he had a young family and I think that house was bigger. And anyway, he, they um, decided to convert the rectory, which is where the garden and carpenter house are, convert that to offices and meeting area. And they bought a house on Chestnut Hill, which is uh, near Independent Presbyterian Church, where the rector lived. And then later, there were several different uh, rectories in um, Forest Park, and then more recently uh, in Redmont. So it's moved around. Well, uh, the bells are tolling, uh, which is our, our signal to wrap up. Um, I hope we'll come back to, to part two. Um, we'll get into the 20th century, as Alice said. Um, and uh, thank you so much, Alice, for, for leading us this morning. We're going to have to say Thank you for coming. Uh, as Bob Marley says, uh, if you don't know your history, you don't know where you're coming from. So um, that's why we're doing this. So. Uh, thank you so much. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks,